welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Renee Garrett, and I'm your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASH CEUs. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Our guest tonight is Dr. Treasure Williams-Wood. She is a salaried employee of DePaul Speech-Language Pathology Program and Clinic and is an honorarium recipient for her participation in this podcast. Dr. Williams-Wood is currently the board member at large, American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. My financial disclosures are that I am an employee of a private consultation firm in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I receive salary there, and I receive salary as the host of this podcast. My non-financial disclosure is that I am the secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Now, without further ado, we welcome our guest, Dr. Treasure Williams-Wood, who is a native of Metro Detroit, Michigan. She graduated from Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan, with a Bachelor of Science in Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology, later earned a Master of Science degree in Communicative Sciences and Disorders from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. Treasure then obtained a clinical doctorate in speech-language pathology, an SLPD, from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Dr. Williams-Wood specializes in teaching topics related to neural bases of communication. She enjoys educating fellow professionals, community members, and graduate students. She is passionate about developing person-centered interventions for individuals with voice, swallowing, cognitive, and communicative deficits as a result of neurogenic dysfunction. She has been awarded a Certificate of Clinical Competence, CCC, from the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, also known as ASHA. Additionally, she holds a certification from the National Council of Certified Dementia Practitioners. Dr. Williams-Wood was elected to the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, ASHA, Board of Directors, as member at large in 2022 and is currently serving a two-year term. She also serves on the SIG-2 Neurogenic Disorders Professional Development Committee. She is delighted to utilize her specialized training to lead a no-fee 
donation-based speech and language clinic and her role as director of clinical education and clinical associate professor at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Treasure. I'm so grateful to have you here tonight. Thank you. I'm listening to that and I'm like, I do way too much. I need to stop doing all this stuff. Oh, I need the <laughs> snack break. I, after yeah, that. I was about to say, I think I need to, you just maybe help me set my new goal for the next month is to do less. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> of course. I'm so glad to have you here. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy grateful. to be here from Chicago. Yeah. Well, and it's funny to, you know, chat with you before and know that we have some background in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. Yes. Um, I'm like a Hampton mentioned. University alum. I lived in Norfolk. I lived in Hampton. I lived in Newport News. And after I graduated from Hampton, I did my clinical fellowship at Riverside Health, where you were, and Ooh, yeah, we yeah. just never crossed paths, and we were there at the same time. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy because aphasia is such a near and dear thing yeah. for me, being that my dad was a stroke survivor that had aphasia for about 12 years before he had his last stroke that he passed away from, so Aphasia is my why and my reason that I became an SLP. So this is a great topic to me and a very important one because I think there's a lot of misconceptions. I know that research recently has linked aphasia from being a language disorder to also a cognitive disorder. But my training has always been and my educational background was with Dr. Stacey Raymer. So we were taught that, that those things were separate and distinct. So can we start by just talking about what aphasia is and maybe what it's not? Yes, yes. So the first thing, aphasia is not a lack of intelligence. I think that's the first thing that people seem to go towards. I hear a lot of times people, even care partners say, oh, well, you know, he's still smart. Or sometimes you hear patients come in and say, well, I'm coming here to get smarter because they really um, perceive their communication difficulties as a measure of their intellect. So I think it's easiest to start off by talking about what it is not. It is a, not a measure of a person's intellectual capability or their level of intelligence. The simplest way to define aphasia is as a loss of language due to an acquired brain injury, whether that be a, something that was acutely acquired or something that has been progressively worsening over time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I know for most people, we think of it as associated with stroke, but it can also be associated with traumatic brain injury, TBI. So we do see that with our population and, and patient groups that we serve. So let's just kind of jump into what the acute phase of chronic aphasia looks like. Yeah. So some common challenges and characteristics that you notice with individuals are of aphasia are within the realm of receptive and expressive communication across different modalities. So speaking, writing, texting, which is a new area of research because we've never really explored texting. We've always explored written output and expressive language with aphasia. But now in 2024, I know I text for the, you know, the primary mode of my communication. We're looking at how individuals with aphasia can text. For the receptive communication side, you'll see difficulties with following directions, 
understanding paragraphs or long strings of information, being able to follow along in a conversation, understanding the meaning of concrete and abstract words or language. And there are things that we call aphasia characteristics. So those kind of hallmark things that folks with aphasia demonstrate, the characteristic behaviors. So there's jargon, neologism, which is a word that makes no sense, but that looks like or sounds like a real word. There are paraphasias, which is when we substitute a word for something else. You can do that in two categories, like a semantic paraphasia, which is when you might be pointing to a phone and say, oh, hand me the television. And you go, oh, they're semantically related because they're both electronics, but that's not what the person meant. Or you can say, hand me the bone. And you're phonemically exchanging the sound for B for F, the f sound. And so those are a couple of different ways that you can characterize a person's aphasia. But then you also have fluency, right? The prosody, mm-hmm. tone, and output of their spoken word production. When we see individuals, sometimes they can have aphasia and sound completely normal. And we characterize those folks as fluent. And then you have folks that usually, they seem like they're struggling. Producing spoken language is very difficult for them. Um, They might only have sounds or or sometimes grunts because they have difficulty also with planning motor movements like apraxia. And we say they're non-fluent. And so some things that we see when in the acute phase and how we really are able to assess is we look at whether a person is fluent or not. We look at how well their comprehension is, whether their their ability to comprehend. We look at their ability to repeat. We look at their word finding. And so that kind of helps us narrow down how to classify their aphasia and kind of points us in the direction of what treatments might be appropriate and what type of supports might be appropriate. Yeah. And I'm taking it all in because I feel like these are things that I actually tell my patients because I think it's so important for them to understand that, yeah, sometimes this might be a challenge for you. And then other times this may be something that works. And so when I'm looking at evidence-based practice and even assessment, looking at what their strengths are and how to connect that to what the things are. And I just don't like deficits. I don't like that word. So I always term it in what you're good at and what you have a challenge with and how we match those two together so that we can maximize what you're able to do, knowing that there's going to be times where no matter what we do, there's going to be a breakdown and how do we kind of move forward and and deal with that. So, you know, when we're thinking about evidence-based treatment, you know, I think we have a lot of treatment techniques. For me, I don't find that there's ever been a one size fits all. I sort of will throw a couple different things out the first few sessions of treatment just to see how the response is from the patient and maybe even from the family or caregiver, whoever it is that attends or doesn't attend with them. But looking at what evidence-based practice we can utilize and treatment techniques that we know that have been proven to work. So are there evidence-based practice techniques that you like to start with and go for? Because I'm just 
not, I don't know, the longer I do this, the less fan I am of standardized testing. I know that's probably- Well, I think there's a place for everything. And I yeah. think before I even decide of what evidence-based approach, for me, I really, it's so important to, I think, take an approach, an inclusionary approach or a participation-based approach. Mm-hmm. And so before I even decide what evidence-based practice specifically for a task or a skill that I use. When I do an assessment, the first thing that I am looking at is the life participation approach, you know, versus that historical and solely focused impairment-based model. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Kagan et al. and I believe it was 2008 came out with this life participation approach. And, you know, if you also want to go back a little further, in 2001, the World Health Organization came out with this ICF model. So this Mm -hmm. international classification of functioning. And what it does is it provides us with this framework to address functioning and disability related to health conditions within the mm-hmm. context of somebody's activities and their participation and just their everyday life. And that really kind of rocked our world as SLPs because we are used to like most healthcare providers are fixing the problem. Your leg is broke, we fix the leg, then you walk. Your speech is broke, we fix the speech, then you talk. But this says, okay, let's do it backwards. And then, you know, subsequently we have the flip to rehab model as well. And let's look at what this quality of life look like? That's the first thing. Let's target mm-hmm. this person's quality of life. So in comparison to uh, like the impairment-based treatment, which is really focused on standardized testing only, really focused on just fixing the deficit, kind of like tightening the screws in the wheel, we have participation-focused therapy, which has a lot of great data to show better outcomes, right? Because we know our our patients are more than their jargon or their neologisms or their paraphasias. You know, they have things that they want to do, like you said, things that they want to get back to doing. And I think that starting off at the assessment phase and taking that approach from the get-go naturally helps you to decide and discern what types of evidence-based strategies you're going to use versus taking a deficit approach and just kind of stacking them on each other, right? And so something that I think is really important for clinicians when we're approaching treatment is to think about, okay, what is this person's life goals? Mm -hmm. And I am just one third of the team, right? I'm the clinician, but what do they say? And what do their care partners say? What do their what does their family want to see from them? And how do we work together to achieve that? And that's what I frame my assessment and then my subsequent treatment on trying to do. And I think that when you have that, you tend to have more buy-in from the patient and their families, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know. Yep. And you tend to see better generalization. And I think they're just, my opinion is just that they're more engaged, right? And so I think that, you know, whatever treatment I use, I'm always doing it through the lens of the life participation approach for aphasia, because I think that communication is a social action. And so you have to look at how this 
people are participating in their environment, you know, because yeah, I can help you name animals. I can say, ready, set, go, name as many animals as you can. But unless you're a farmer, how does that matter? Unless you're a zookeeper, <laughs> yeah. cares, right? Name yeah. as many fruits. Unless you work at the grocery store or the fruit market, why does that matter? Why is that a measure of anything? Versus, okay, let's see how many times you have to ask for clarification when you go to the bank. Oh, you have pizza night every Friday with your family. Let's see if you can place your pizza order accurately and don't have to fix it, right? Things like that that actually matter to people. Or you want to give a speech at your daughter's wedding. All right, let's write out the speech and see you give it now versus after we do some therapy, right? Those are actual participation-focused goals. And then once you establish what those life goals are, then you work in your evidence-based you know, treatment that is either structured or sometimes you have to modify it for the client to be successful. Mm-hmm. But to me, life participation approach really gives you this framework and this map for which to follow. And you know, standardized testing is fine. You know, you have to start somewhere, but I think it only becomes problematic when it's implemented as the only form, right? You know, standardized testing is, you know, a necessary evil, especially if your patient is, you know, insurance bound, but you also want to look at measures of quality of their, of life. Like I love the communication confidence rating scale, uh, for people with aphasia, the CCRSA, mm-hmm. I love the aphasia, the AIQ. There are so many qualitative measures. And I think as professionals, we don't use them enough and give them enough value. But those are the ones that really t- re- can really discern whether a patient is progressing or not. You know, you said one of your pet peeves is deficits. My pet peeve is plateau. Mm-hmm big pet yeah. with people with aphasia. And I say to my students all the time, patients don't plateau, therapists do. You run out of ideas, which is normal, right? We're not machines, right? But we plateau because we're just doing the same thing over and over and over again, drilling that, just kicking that dead horse. And then <laughs> we go, oh, all right. Well, you keep naming exactly 17 animals. You're healed. But the person can't do, they can't pay their bills. They can't do all these other things. And so I think that in order to avoid hitting that plateau, when you're working on individuals' life goals, we're all just constantly working towards something and trying to improve ourselves. So I think you avoid a lot of that plateauing that we talk about during our practice. Yeah, no, I think that's great because, you know, when I was in acute care and then I morphed into outpatient you know, I started out in inpatient rehab. Inpatient rehab to me is, it's, I still say it's my first love. That was the place that I learned the most as far as how to incorporate the patient. Because typically, those patients were the ones who did have good caregiver, care support, um, whether that was a family member, a friend, a neighbor, whatever it was. And so it really helped me see like the importance not only of incorporating those life goals for patients, but knowing that as a family member first, I always felt like our education 
for aphasia was lacking. Like I didn't understand what was going on with my dad. I didn't know. No one really explained it. And so that was a big drive for me to always incorporate both of those pieces. And so an outpatient, I would have patients come in and would say, I've never had anybody like family or even the patient would say, I've never had anybody ask me that. I've never had anybody ask me what my goal was. I've never had anyone say, it's okay if today you just need to talk about what happened last week, because that's what a session looks like. Um, It can be goal driven all day long, but for some patients, if, especially if they are reliant on someone else for their care, whether it's ADLs, whether it's IADLs, whether it's communication with their physician or uh, social services for their disability claim or whatever it is, Sometimes those challenges are so overwhelming that they come in and it's like we provide this intimate space with trust and protection because we're usually in this, you know, more closed environment where other people can't hear. We can be patient and let them have that extra time because extra time is so important for a lot of our patients with aphasia where sometimes they get two words and they need to sit there for like yeah, what sounds yeah. like eternity, but it's really not. It's, you know, sometimes 30 seconds to a minute, and then they're able to sort of get this like cathartic yeah, um, uh, bit of language. And I, and I think to your point, you made several really good points about meeting the patient where they're at and really being patient focused. But I think we've gotten to a point in our healthcare system where, and I think it's important to acknowledge the very real struggle and pressure that we as speech-language pathologists face in the medical setting to do Mm -hmm. just that. It's become so productivity, and I I mean, it's kind of always been, but it's gotten worse and worse with productivity standards and just over-assessing and outcome measures where, you know, you have 30 minutes, you're in here, you have a laptop in your hand, or you have a laptop on a cart, and you got 20 more people to see, and you got to be able to show these numbers by the end of your day, and you want to get home to your family. And so all of those extrinsic pressures have a way of really kind of dampening our ability to be creative and also to be flexible. Mm -hmm. And when you're flexible is when you have those kind of natural interactions and when you're able to turn anything into therapy. So I think that's where the advocacy part comes in for me, where I, you know, I think it's so important as SOPs for us to advocate at, you know, the policy level within our workplaces and then even with public policy about allowing us to do our jobs without the pressure and the cumbersome weight of having to constantly be held to a productivity standard that is unrealistic. I think that's so important. And then, you know, sometimes I think in one-to-one therapy, the what you're doing, it can just be very difficult to take that type of time that's considered informal, right? And just because of the nature of how our health system is set up. And that's why I like groups so much. And that's why I found group therapy to be such a helpful thing because it allows for a little bit more space and doing that, and you don't have the same type of pressure as just having to produce, you know? Yeah. And I think like for me, one of the things that was a real challenge with outpatient was that 
I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this, but there's really not a nice way to say it. It, it was the pressures of being told no for reasons like we don't want to give the space. And I think that's a difference between working for an entity that like a healthcare system that is revenue driven, even if they're nonprofit and working in a space where you have students and you are able in a university to have um, more of a support based group and utilize that in a way that helps the community because, you know, we like to think that we can integrate the two and have a community-based education to start with all these health fairs and things like that. And we know that it's not where it needs to be. We oh, we know oh. that our, you know, regular community, but also our marginalized communities, like where I live and where I've worked, don't have good community access to education about preventable conditions like stroke they have no idea what aphasia is, and that could be an entirely different episode of this podcast. But I think when we're thinking about the community-based supports that we need, you know, I think a model is set up not in our favor when it comes to a healthcare model, but when it comes to a university-based model, I think it, I don't want to say it's easier because I don't think it's easy by any stretch, but I think it's it's more maybe- it's more flexible. And I would say it's easier because universities are still revenue driven, but the revenue is not dependent upon the community or the patient. It's dependent upon the students paying tuition. And so that's different because as long as you can meet your outcome, your learning outcomes for your students, then you can justify doing these things. And you can justify these learning activities. And so I do, I think that I, I would say it is easier, right? Because universities and academic institutions have always been a place of as long as the students are learning and we're being innovative, then we can have, then go abroad, study abroad, do an independent study, do these things. So there is a lot more flexibility because we know that there's so many different ways to learn. Whereas in a healthcare setting where I've worked in skilled nursing, inpatient, outpatient, acute care, I've been a travel SLP, and you know, your margin for creativity is about this big because they need to assure that they're gonna keep the lights on. They're gonna, they need to make sure that they pay their bills. They're a business and businesses in business to make money. And so I think that. It is different, and I think that it is difficult because when you work speech language pathologists like workhorses, which you know I remember, you know I I've been there where you don't even have a chance to breathe, and you know to this day I transitioned to academia three years ago. I was on the floor in hospitals up until three years ago. I still have trained myself not to use the bathroom for like six hours at a time. And I have to like, I'm trying to really, cause I'm like, I'm going to have the worst kidneys, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Same. but because you're so used to grabbing all your things and eating and not using the bathroom because you're one after the other. And so there's, it's really difficult to be creative and to work on community when you have to be so focused in order to keep your job. And that's mm-hmm. really sad because I think that it's not effective. Doesn't work. It's not helping. But you know, 
we have to, as a healthcare system and as providers advocate for the power and the impact of preventative medicine. And everyone doesn't like preventative medicine because if you prevent things, then you don't need pharmacology. Mm-hmm. You don't need as many pharmacy, you know, you don't need polypharmacy if you prevent it. If you prevent the stroke, then you don't need the $10,000 CT, the $80,000 MRI, the $200,000 therapy course. You know, it's a billion dollar industry. And so to your point, when you said that you meet patients, it almost feels like one of my patients said, I feel like I've been on a conveyor belt until I got to you because I was in acute care. They come in, there's all these people in, they look at me, boom, boom, boom. Next level. Okay. I come in here, blah, blah, and everybody's focused on the goal that they have for you until you get to, you know, a slower pace, that inpatient rehab where you have that three hour rule and I get to sit and look at your face and you get to get to know me. And then sometimes outpatient where you can sit with someone and then you can actually look at them and say, oh, how are you? And mm-hmm. that's really sad. It's really sad. It is really sad. But yeah, I've, I mean, I've lived that. And it's a challenge. And um, I think for me, that's probably one of the reasons that I had to leave um, (laughs) where I was working because as I, my doctor calls it maturing because I'm not getting older, I'm maturing. I just find it. There you go. Yes. I just find it more and more difficult what I know, how much impact the education, the name of the diagnosis, you have aphasia. Aphasia is this, this, and this. For you, what are you having trouble with? Do you feel like the word is there and it leaves before you can get it out? Or is the word stuck and it won't come out? Like there's a lot of ways that I'll kind of describe it and try to figure out informally. Because I think, again, that is so impactful for the patient because that's sometimes the first layer of someone who says, I see you and I have seen something similar. How can I use this to help you? And for yeah, a lot yeah. of patients, it's it's a very emotional experience, right? They get tearful. They sometimes will not necessarily shut down, but even become a little bit more less verbal because it's so like overwhelming, emotionally yeah. overwhelming to finally be seen and to Her, say, oh, yeah. there's a name for this. I'm not mm-hmm. making it up, you know, and I think at our core, we all need to feel validated. It can be very difficult for individuals with aphasia because when your leg is broken, everybody gets to see it. You're wearing a leg cast, you have swelling, you're limping, but individuals with aphasia, it's almost like a silent burden where, you know, they have to really fight to be seen and understood. And it's a different set of challenges versus someone who is, okay, you clearly are an amputee. You have a prosthetic leg. Okay. We see that. But in our society, especially, we tend to give less weight to, you know, our, the invisible things like mental health and Mm -hmm. communication disorders and things like that. Things that don't immediately pop out to you that aren't as concrete. And that can be really, really difficult if you've gone your entire life being an independent person, able to participate. You know, nobody, you know, I tell my patients, it's okay to be upset. I'm sure when you got married to, you know, Johnny, you didn't think that this is where you would be. And I'm sure that when you went to law school, you does not think that you did all of that to get to this point. 
And that's okay because there is a very real grieving process associated with this disorder. Yeah. And I think that too, you know, when we think about stroke education in general and then looping in with aphasia, we know that depression is a real reaction in the chemical reaction in the brain to the changes that have happened as a result of the stroke. And so I think too, and I'm kind of going left from the questions, but I just feel like this is more of an organic conversation. And I just, you know, I can remember, especially with my dad, like my dad was like the strong traditional dad breadwinner, worked in the shipyard, like came from rural North Carolina with, you know, no opportunity for job. And so for him, he had worked his way up. He had gone to nuclear school for what his trade was and become certified. And so at the point where he had the stroke, he was, it's sort of like a mid to not a high level manager, but like mid to high. So he was doing well. He had really accomplished a lot for someone with a high school education. And so for him also, like my dad was like 5'10". So he's short, but really good at basketball. Like he's always in the sports, very physically active. His job was physically active. And so it was really difficult for him. But then also that component of how his brain reacted to the stroke and having this component of depression and tearfulness and places that he had never been like that he shared like as you know as a dad or as a family member no one ever saw my dad cry oh my yeah, god that emotional ability mm-hmm. comes out sometimes the suitable or affect yes. can arise and like you said it all has to it all has to be addressed and validated because it is a sense of identity lost Mm-hmm. If you work your whole life and you say, when I grow up, you know, we've all, we all do. When I grow up, I want to go to college and I want to have a wife and kids. You don't say when I grow up, I want to suddenly have a stroke and not be able to do all of those things. And so, you know, a lot of us define our success in life by how we can take care of our families, how we're able to take care of ourselves. I know a common thing that I hear from my patients that resonates with me so very much is they, a lot of them say, you know, I may not have been the most athletic person. I may not have been the most talented person. I might not be, you know, the most, you know, beautiful person, but I have always had a way with words and I could talk my way out of anything, or I have always had a way with the pen and I could write. I am a very good writer. I just, that's something that I have a sense of pride. And so losing something that you felt like was a strength at a point in your life where you are, you know, at the second phase of life, right, is very, very difficult because, mm-hmm. you know, now you have to look at, wow, I've spent my entire life honing this skill using my strengths to my advantage. And now they've been ripped away in the blink of an eye. I need to grieve them, but also what am I going to do now? And Mm -hmm. now I have to sit here with this person who is half my age usually, right? (laughs) Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with older folks, I have to sit here with this person who's half my age, who doesn't know anything about life, who's never had this stroke, and who is talking to me in this high-pitched baby voice, and I am angry. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've had that with a lot of patients, you know, they're like, you're the same age as my grandchild or you're the same age as my daughter. And, you know, I was the president of a company. I was a CEO. I was, you know, a neuroscientist. And now I'm here. And that is so very depressing to people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's depressing if you don't have the automatic chemical imbalance that comes after a stroke. And so it's important, I think, in terms of interprofessional practice to make sure that you have strategies as a clinician and that you have partnerships and connections to support a person's mental health. You can't take mental health. It's like salt in the stew. You can't take it out. You can't separate it. Right. Yeah. And I got that early on because we had two really great neuropsychologists that worked on our team and IPR and I actually consulted with one of them this many years later when I was an outpatient because we had a couple of patients that she sent over that had primary progressive aphasia. And I really want to jump into, and I know we were going to talk about some techniques and strategies across the continuum of care. And I think we still can, but I really want to jump into the community-based supports and the groups because I, again, I just think that is so important to talk about that and, you know, kind of expand on what those look like, because I think we think of it as a one note thing where it's like um, just a communication group where people come and talk, but there's so many other things that you can do with that. And you have. Yeah. My favorite. It's my favorite. favorite. And then just, you know, to back up and just, you know, I think the first case I want to make is that there's evidence and I have some articles I'm going to share with you as well, if you can post them or, but there's evidence that, you know, community groups for people with aphasia are effective and they are beneficial in many, many ways. And so I think as clinicians, sometimes we have to have that information and know that, okay, this is going to work because we have to advocate for it at the management level a lot of times. And they want to know, well, what are the benefits? And, you know, the benefits just coming off of the discussion we just had about mental health, our social interaction, right? Increasing a person's psychosocial well-being is how you help them heal their brain. We know that stressed, depressed brains do not function as well as happy brains, right? That's just a fact, right? Depression causes memory issues. It causes information processing issues and attention issues. So, you know, we are equally as vested in a patient's psychosocial well-being as any other provider. And then pragmatic language things. There's so many things that, you know, when you're drilling rote things, you're doing your V-nest, you're doing your speech sound production treatment, you're doing those things. But what about initiation? It gives you this wonderful opportunity to allow your patients to practice initiating communication mm-hmm. and turn-taking and staying on topic. Or, you know, we talk a lot about generalization of skills. Well, aphasia groups allow you to have several different communication partners, right? So you're getting that repeated practice across different people, which increases the likelihood of skill transfer and that generalization of skills. And then you have this naturalized context. And I think that's what's different about what we do in our groups. We try to find as many naturalized contexts and repeat them. So we have a cooking class for people with aphasia. We've done a book club. 
We've done a conversation group about movies. You know, we have done karaoke before. You know, we've done game shows, right? Things that people like to do, trivia nights and things like that. And so it allows individuals to practice improvisational skills, right? Like, you know, everything doesn't have to be so rehearsed. And instead of relying on that rote learning, which is a place for it, just being able to improvise, what happens? I'm here, right? You know, I've done groups before where we set up a store in the clinic and everybody had to go shopping and get beeped out. And it was, I mean, we're all in stitches at the end of it, right? Because, but then they can practice. And Mm -hmm. then I think that a case for these aphasia groups is the cost effectiveness, right? Because when we're looking at value-based and managed care, being able to see individuals and targeting these multiple different things is more cost-effective than trying to knock out one-to-one sessions all day, every single day. And so Mm -hmm. there's something to be said with kind of diversifying how we're delivering services to these patients. And so I think some of my favorite community groups, we just finished two that we piloted that I, I loved, is that we did a cooking class and every week we did recipes and, you know, everyone had to come and they, you know, get their aprons. Okay. Ask for, you know, get all your, your things. And there's so many different things you can target, right? You can target receptive language. Do you understand the recipe? Do you understand what you need for the recipe? You can expressive language. If someone says pass this ingredient, do you understand that? Right. If someone needs to practice reading, okay, you read this recipe out loud. If someone needs to practice naming or, you know, word retrieval, you have to go to the cabinet and tell me which one you want me to get down, right? So all those types of things that are naturally woven into the session. And then at the end, you get to have pizza. You get to have a snack. And so also with like written supports, right? We can gauge, okay, what type of technology does this person need? Mm-hmm. And then we've done an AAC and aphasia group before, which I just love where, you know, I think that one of the most difficult things about AAC is that you advocate and advocate for this person to get this device, right? You have did the Lingraphica assessment or the Toby Dynabox assessment. You get them the device, you teach them how to use the device, and then the device sits in their living room on a dresser because they have nobody to talk to. And Mm -hmm. all they're saying is yes, no, hungry, pot, you know, bathroom. And so it was really awesome to have this AAC group where people can come and bring their devices and, you know, you can play board games or you can talk about the weather or you can talk about, you know, pull up different topics that you talk about and just Mm -hmm. converse and practice discourse and practice that back and forth talking with your group members, instead of constantly having someone who is not using a device trying to figure it out or speak for you. And so I loved having those two groups specifically. Yeah, my head is full of ideas and swirling. Yeah, and AAC (laughs) can be low tech or high tech. And so that's the thing that, you know, we live in Chicago, so we have a lot of just people in general that, you know, are living with a communication impairment, but When you have, you know, maybe you might not have that many folks. If you have folks that may need script, 
a script, a paper script, that's, mm-hmm. that's still a support, right? And so I love it because you can target different levels and you can target different things in a group, but everyone gets to participate in some degree. Yeah, and I think script training is good because I think it was Nina Simmons Mackey that, you know, kind of revolutionized, I think, making that research more accessible. And I don't remember, I want to say like 2006-ish, but I'm sure that's probably maybe too late. I think it maybe was published before that, but I, I remember having that training because again, I I mean, I, I had Dr. Raymer, Dr. Stacey Raymer, so for undergrad and grad school for aphasia. So I think we had the benefit of learning things that as I've encountered people along the way from other programs, maybe didn't learn kind of going back to that, the WHO model and the ICF and the life participation approach. We were already learning that as student clinicians and the script training, you know, we were doing that phrase fill in kind of, and not the striker cards, but like the phrases where you had like the little white, it almost looked like a giant piece of notebook paper that we learned handwriting on when we were kids with the dotted line in the middle came from the teacher's teacher store. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We would like do dry erase on that and they, my name is and feel, but yeah, back to what you were saying, like, I think that's so important because I don't know that the low tech is utilized as much as I remember utilizing it and it could, again, it could be location-specific, setting-specific. Maybe it's used in some places that I'm just not seeing it. But the low tech definitely has a place. And the script training, I think, particularly for the patients I've worked with for restaurant ordering, because a lot of times that's one of the things a spouse will come in and say is, you know, I have to order for him or I have to order for her. And I'm like, but why, but why do you, why do you have to? Um, Yeah. Restaurant ordering and going to checkups, right? A lot of folks after they Mm -hmm. have their whole life becomes going to different appointments, appointments, Yeah, you know, knowing that, okay, I have this kind of word, you know, and then there's kind of two things that I love. I love the using these, but also just like supported conversation techniques for people with aphasia and training others and training a care partner how to do that in order to help confirm and elaborate on the person's message. But in terms of participation, you know, I've done a lot with, you know, using people's phones, you know, there's storybook app creator, the notes section of the phone is now incredible. You can make a whole AAC device out of the note section of someone's phone or out of the photo section of someone's phone now with the capabilities. But when all this fails, in my opinion, this is how I was taught. The best therapy tools is a black Sharpie and a blank piece of paper. Like you can do anything with a black Sharpie and some white paper. The world is your oyster, right? And Mm -hmm. Using that to confirm yes or no, using that to confirm, you know, clarify between two different words, drawing uh, mm-hmm. pictures, you know, developing a word bank that you can then convert later into an actual communication book, you know, making a what we call personal dictionary is mm-hmm. something I do a lot with my patients with primary progressive aphasia, but it also can really help with people with more, you know, 
really kind of severe anomic aphasia so that you are really saying, okay, what are the words that matter to you? What is your core vocabulary? And when it comes to food and where you in things around the house and people in your social circle. So again, I could have you name fruits or (laughs) I could say, what's your grocery list? What was the last grocery list? Okay, let's practice those things instead and put those in your communication book or make you a communication wallet with a little, um, those little silver things. I can't remember what they're called now or, you know, something. I love the little, they're like a dollar on Amazon. They're they're called photo albums, but they're made of plastic Mm -hmm. and they're like, four by six and you can print that off and that way a person can just have it in their purse and you have it a section for restaurants a section for this I've had patients that travel a lot and I make them different ones so when they travel they have one for customs and they just put it in their their bag and when they pull it out you're going to customs now you know this is your script for customs or they have one for when they go to the doctor and they know they're going to ask you name and date of birth. So you flip it open, my doctor's appointments, okay? My name is, my date of birth is, my. those are the three security questions. Then we have a scale, pain level. We know mm-hmm. that medication, changes, no changes. So that they feel really supported in these day-to-day activities. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, what we find is that it's almost like you or I going to the physician where the questions come when we're no longer with the practitioner. And so they're able to sometimes use it, but without necessarily having to fully rely on it, if that makes sense. Yeah. More of a tool versus a total assistance situation. And yeah, and I think that's so important because that's another thing that I tell people, the questions come when I'm no longer in front of you. So keep a notebook, write your questions down, try to do it when it's fresh. I don't care if it's a a week ago question, at least try to keep track of it the best way you can, even if it's only keywords, because sometimes the keywords will translate into exactly. I was about to say, I like doing question sections and communication books that say, okay, question, is it about something on my body? Is it about a time? Is it about something else? Right. And that's where mm-hmm. communication books can be so helpful because they may not have exactly what you're trying to say, but they provide a map mm-hmm. for you to get to it. Because how many word finding issues have I had during this podcast? <laughs> You know, (laughs) like how many, right? It's the end of the day. And I'm like, okay, this is the, and then, but I follow a map, right? And so you have to use, you want, I think the therapy is not meant to be forever, right? I always tell my patients that if I saw you forever, I'm not a good therapist because my goal is to get you to a point, not that you're perfect, because we know aphasia is treatable, is not curable. Your brain will always feel different. Your brain is always going to feel different and that's okay, but you have aphasia. Aphasia does not have you and you live with this and your brain may feel different, but I don't know about you. I've had some things happen and my knees are not the same since I did the splits back in 95 and they're not going to be, and that's okay. I have to live with those choices, (laughs) right? And so there are, you know, where we evolve and change as humans 
But it's important for our patients to know that the success is you not needing me. Mm -hmm. Success is you're not a a broken thing to fix. You are a human being and you're going to evolve. And one day you're going to evolve beyond needing me. And that is the success. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's where those functional tasks really come into play. And I had someone when I first transitioned to outpatient and and I think I talked about him on the, the phasia case studies I did, but he liked to play chess. It was something that he had learned as an adult, but he didn't really, I mean, kind of said he hustled a little bit, but he would play people that sometimes there was a financial transaction involved and sometimes there wasn't. But it was really important for him to be able to get back to that. So we incorporated that by, I don't play chess, I didn't know how to play chess. So one of the things we worked on was he had to teach me the rules. We started with the names of the pieces on the board. We started with basics. Chess is not, uh, yeah, he practiced. Cause I, I was going to say, I've had chess coaches. I've had golf people. I think that's the cool thing about being a speech pathologist is because in this career, I can tell you about everything about dahlias. Cause I had a patient that was a dahlia farmer. Oh, wow. Yeah, like very random, right? I can tell you, you're very good at having small talk at parties because these people come into your life and then their interests become your interests. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that patient that raises chickens or the patient that is the chess player or the patient that is the sommelier or, you know, you be... That's a, right, that because we know a Bloom's taxonomy tells us that, you know, one of the highest forms of learning is when you can teach others, Yeah, when you can create and you can teach others. And that's a perfect example of that. Plus, it was really fun. I mean, it's fun. It's for fun, right? And you learned how to play chess, right? Hopefully, maybe I don't later. know about all that. But <laughs> <laughs> I think he beat me in like, I don't know, five moves the first time you we ever him, played. You let, him, you let him win. That's Yeah, we'll him. go. Well, it's probably patient not center it, care. Yeah, patient yeah. center care. Let him win. There's a reason I don't do a lot of math and stuff. But <laughs> and tell people, speech path, don't do math. That's not. <laughs> there you go. The math's not math. And, but just kind of thinking about like, you know, where our aphasia care is going and, and some of the great things that have come out with apps and things like that. Do you have any kind of a, emerging thoughts for technology and, and the role that that plays in aphasia care? Oh, absolutely. I gave a whole um, ASHA presentation on it this past year at ASHA. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, I know. <laughs> I, I feel very strongly about using technology to support folks with aphasia, I think, you know, they're kind of two bodies of which we do this, right? There's that direct therapy that we can use apps and then there's indirect therapy. And I think that, you know, one way that I think people kind of get a little bit in the weeds about is they don't ask the question, what is this for, right? It's not client directed. It's not a means to an end. And so what I challenge people to say is, you know, when you're using technology, you want to say, I'm using blank app in order to blank. Mm -hmm. And you really want to be as specific as you can with that question. Right. And so, you know, I love, for example, constant therapy, but 
just setting a patient up on constant therapy or tactics therapy and saying, okay, yeah, just do this because you scored this on a standardized test. That is is not really helpful, right? And so you have to, you know, you want to make that decision early on. You know, if I'm doing direct therapy, am I using this for a restorative function or Mm -hmm. am I using this for a compensatory function? So you really got to think of the purpose to tie the technology to the life participation approach, right? And, you know, that's when you, you know, if you're using it for, direct therapy, then you're embedding that language practice. And if you're doing it for compensatory, then you're supporting their communication, right? And so mm-hmm. things like using the text-to-speech voiceover or, you know, that is something that is a compensatory, right? Using apps like EE Speech Basic or Lingraphica Small Talk, right? Those mm-hmm. are all things that you want to look at. I like the Tactus apps for direct therapy, um, but looking for communication output in a compensatory phase, then you, you know, there are different things that you want to look for, even a calendar, right? And you want to make sure that your client understands that, okay, we're using this as a speech generating device in order to help you compensate, right? For something. And so versus we're using this because this is going to return your speech to perfect, right? And so you really just want to have that support. So I like, even like Alexa, like with writing support, you know, having Alexa or having the talk to text feature where you have them write it out or using the prompt in your phone, the lookup section in your phone when you're reading something to get that reading support. That is really, really helpful. And so, you know, I think that we've there's been a lot out there in terms of like an app list or these are what fix your mm-hmm. brain. But I think you really have to be careful with that. And then if you're looking at indirect, how can I indirectly use technology? Again, that's where you go back to what you were talking about, those paper-based aids and the visual support. But again, you want to ask yourself three things. What is the purpose of this activity? How is it connecting to this person's participation in a life goal? And what evidence-based intervention am I using? Because it still should be tied to evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. You know, if I'm working on lexical cascade treatment, sure, I'm going to do that through, you know, writing out all of the vocab and having that, right? Or if I'm working on script training, yes, I will use this paper-based communication aid to talk about this person's children or ordering a coffee, or I'm going to use PowerPoint and picture collage app and Google Docs or or Canva, right? But I'm using these apps and these aids to do my lexical retrieval strategies. Or if I am working on word finding and I know my patient loves apps, there's a wonderful app that you can use. It's called Plant Snap app or Seek app. And mm-hmm. identify plants, insects, animals. So if your patient is into things like that, you know, they can just put the app on it and it'll prompt them with the word so they can help talk about it. But then you can also just on an iPhone, right, take a picture of something and then click the look up feature, the visual look up feature on Apple devices, and it'll look it up. So, you know, 
you have to say in order to what? If I'm trying to do RET response elaboration treatment and like the Pinterest app, I love the Pinterest app for that because you can pull up a board and you can use that as visual supports to do that or a collage making app. So you want to consider the purpose and then you want to consider the environment. Is the person living in a house where uh, they will not be able to keep up with a communication wallet, right? That they might need a something more functional or are they living somewhere where they're always on the go and they need something that's more portable? So I think that as long as you consider the functional communication value and the participation, technology can be such a powerful tool to use with your patients. I think so, too. And that's such a kind of a great way to, I think, wrap everything up. I don't see any questions in the Q&A or the chat. So if anyone has questions, we have like maybe a minute-ish <laughs> to cover that. I know we covered a lot tonight and I feel like we could have talked about this for two hours. I know. My favorite, it's my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, Thank you and for having I, me. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love the like the collaboration and thinking about all the the cool ways that we can use technology and whether it's a lower tech or like the, we have some really, like, I love Tactus. I I love, I'm not a Oh, I love them all. When people say, do you, I hate when people go, can I have a list of apps? Because it's not, that's why I I tell people, this is why we get paid the small bucks, right? Is because it's our job to customize. It's to figure out the why. What is Mm -hmm. your why? Like everyone has a why. What's the purpose? And in order, I'm giving you tactics in order to what? To do Mm -hmm. what? Is it in order to practice? Is it in order to participate? Is it in order to have increased independence with this activity? Right. What is the purpose? And if you can answer that question, then the world is your oyster in terms of all the apps you can use. Yeah. Well, well, treasure, you're a treasure. (laughs) Oh, thank you. And I mean that. I thank you so much for being here tonight and just, you know, sharing all of your knowledge. Well, part of your knowledge, because I know that there's so much more that we could discuss and so much more that you have to share. And I'm just really grateful to work with you tonight. And I think I'm excited to see all the research and things you do with your community groups that continue. Yes, um, I'm excited too. And the expansion of that. So anything you want to leave us with tonight, just a little quick follow up and then we'll kind of close out. Yeah. I want to tell all the SOPs that came and took off time is that you are doing enough. You're doing enough. Absolutely. You're doing a great job. You're doing enough. Please don't leave this conversation thinking, oh my gosh, I got to, oh, I'm not good enough. You are doing enough. Just listening to this and letting it marinate just shows your commitment to your profession and Follow me. I'll put my Instagram in the chat. You can follow me on Dr. Williams Wood SOP on Instagram. If you think of any questions or if you have comments, I often post tips and things about working with individuals with aphasia. So always happy to chat. And thank you again, Treasure, for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Renee. Have a good night. Goodbye, everyone. 
If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.